Welcome to the Hale Report. I'm Lyric Hughes-Hale, Editor-in-Chief of EconView, bringing you unconventional views on the global economy from Chicago. Our guest today is Dolly Young, who's the William Claude Rivas Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He's a member of the Committee of 100 at the National Council for U.S.-China Relations. He's a senior advisor to the president of the University of Chicago, and he's a founder of the University of Chicago Beijing um, Center as well. He's written numerous books. He is such an expert on the political development of China in the 20th century, including Calamity and Reform in China, about China's Great Leap Forward, Beyond Beijing and Liberalization and the Limits of Federalism, about local and federal local versus central power in China, the remaking of the Chinese Leviathan, which is um, focuses on China's um, governance as well as the development of the regulatory state in China. We have so many questions to ask. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, on a personal level, is I noticed that you began as an engineering student, and then you switched and got your PhD in political science from, um, from Princeton. And I'm wondering, what was, how did your mind go from engineering and what kind of engineering to political science to social engineering? Well, I uh, went to college in 1979 in China, uh, in Beijing. At that point, in fact, uh, for anyone aspiring to go into college, the right thing to do was to go into sciences and engineering. People wanted uh, to avoid anything related to the humanities and social sciences. So I joined the crowd in many ways, not knowing uh, much. But very soon after I got into college, and I was very lucky, I got in very early, uh, I realized I had other interests, and gradually uh, it's drifted. And eventually, when I came to the U.S. in 1986, uh, so there was an opportunity. I could choose my own major. I uh, it's at that point I decided I want to go into the area of international relations and political science in general. So I switched, and uh, the rest is history. And I I'm really glad it worked, and also I have enjoyed uh, what I do essentially. Well, you probably couldn't have chosen any more central topic than you than uh, China and U.S.-China relations as well, because that seems to be roiling markets. It seems to be fo um, changing the world really. Um, recently, there's been a lot of discussion, and I've, I'm sure you've seen these too, because I read your Twitter as well. <laughs> follow you on Twitter. There have been two articles that look at opposing views of how the U.S. Um, has influenced China. And I wonder where you fall. One is John Pomfret's article in the Washington Post, and essentially he says that China is on its own path and the foreign experts didn't matter. And also then there's Jonas Kornai's recent piece in the Financial Times in which he says that really the foreign economists have had a monstrous effect on China's development. Do you think that's he's correct? He's one of the people who had a big effect on China's development, I believe. Well, certainly he thinks that he had a great impact. Uh, he was a player in many ways, uh, because in the 1980s, uh, for China's reformers in particular, they looked to Eastern Europe for insight, for advice, and Janos uh, Konai's work on the soft budget constraint, and especially on the reform of the communist systems, was very important. But I think actually it just happened that last night I was at a program in uh, downtown in Chicago and I uh, 
had the uh, opportunity to join a, same, uh, a panel with uh, Ambassador uh, Chas Freeman. And we are talking about actually Nixon going to China in 1972. Of course, the American view generally is that President Nixon opened up China. But if, of course, in order for him to be able to do that, the Chinese has to be willing to open to him. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. So in that sense, it's actually an interactive process. It's, of course, uh, you read the history books, it's uh, Premier Zhou Enlai, and particularly Ma, who saw a strategic opportunity, saw that they could actually potentially reach out to uh, President Nixon and, uh, in fact, maneuver to eventually get him and, of course, uh, Henry Kissinger to go to China and so on. So in that sense, actually, it's a sort of a, a historical process. There was a lot of awareness on the part of the Chinese to open, to want, actually, at that point, to counter the Soviet uh, uh, threat. But, of course, eventually, by the 19, uh, late 1970s, early 1980s, China began to pursue reforms. And, of course, China was willing to learn, not just from Eastern Europe, but also from the rest of Asia and, of course, especially from Japan, Europe, and, of course, the United States. That, that seems to now feel like a golden era of U.S.-China relations, and now we seem to have entered something different. And your colleague, John Mearsheimer, has looked at China as an existential strategic threat to the United States. How do you respond to, mm -hmm. to John's comments on that? Well, it's very important to uh, keep in mind in the 1970s and 1980s, the U.S. and China were united by a common threat, uh, namely the Soviet Union. So at that point, the two countries were willing to over, uh, overlook their differences and to partner in many ways in intelligence gathering, in countering the Soviet uh, influence in Afghanistan and in other areas as well. But at the time, in fact, uh, for in many ways, China was still actually also very much, uh, uh, much more a hotline communist state at that point. Of course, after 1991, in particular, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, so sort of things have changed. That common threat is gone. But at the same time, after China especially joined the WTO, it's grown dramatically. So for my colleague, uh, John Mearsheimer, who emphasizes, uh, who espouses the realism school, power matters, and countries seek power, want to maximize power. And of course, in that, regardless of systems, uh, countries that are powerful are likely to go uh, to be at loggerheads against each other. So in that sense, of course, any country, it, uh, for him, it doesn't have to be China. It just has to be a big, big power, especially a rising power, can be considered to be a threat. Uh, so, but at the same time, we also know the two countries have worked uh, in many areas. They, uh, they trade uh, at such a huge amount. There are a lot of human interactions. So there is a separate school in international relations, especially emphasizing interdependence. And because in, through interdependence, we benefit from trade, from interactions, and of course, uh, human knowledge is enriched. We have more discoveries and a lot of that. So the issue, the challenge, therefore, uh, in managing the relations is how do you find the balance between the emphasis on power, namely in particular national security, and the desire to enhance interactions, to uh, join in common causes against many issues that humanity faces, whether it's climate change, or for that matter, the fight against cancer. And I think actually, so at this point, uh, there is a lot of emphasis on the national security side. But at the same time, the two societies are 
two of the most innovative society uh, among the most innovative societies in the world. So therefore, there are also still actually a lot of places where we can work together. So the issue for politicians is how do we find and strike that balance. And I read recently that a poll of U.S. corporates who have traditionally been highly in favor of increased and better relations with China have been changing their their views, and partially because of intellectual property, but also maybe because of the tensions. Forty percent of U.S. corporates in in China now have either already moved their supply chains or plan to move them. I think that's a hugely significant. Number and do you see this erosion of U.S. corporate support as a significant factor in the in the broader political picture? Absolutely.、Uh, going back again to the 1990s when China was trying、uh, trying to join the WTO and so on, the corporate sector spoke up、uh, in favor of greater engagement and of course for China to join the WTO. But of course. There have been a lot of complaints about, especially IPR、uh, protection. Although we have to say that China has over time improved, but the scale of the problems、uh, has also been very substantial. So it's natural for some corporates to be complaining. The other reason, however, is the changing uh, uh, demographics and also economic trajectory in China. Because when China just joined the WTO, it was still a very poor country.、Uh, there was a lot of cheap. Abundant cheap labor in China, so many of the corporates took advantage of that and incorporated China into their value chains. But today, however, the labor costs and also other costs in China, including regulatory costs in China, have risen significantly. So it makes sense for many corporates to begin to diversify the risk. They don't want to put all their eggs in. One basket, namely China. So it's natural already, even before the trade spat,、uh, there were already corporates moving to other parts of the world, including actually Southeast Asia, but also also Africa. Chinese corporations themselves actually are also moving out、uh, to some extent as well. So I think it's a natural process. But the trade conflict, of course, is accelerating. Uh, that process because of the rising tariffs in certain category, categories of goods, and also the threat of higher tariffs. This uncertainty drives many corporations to rethink their supply chain, especially their dependence on China.、Um, and how do you think the manufacturing sector, the export sector in China, is reacting to all of this? Are they being innovative enough?、Um, you mentioned that they're moving to other countries and diversifying themselves. Do you think they're being fundamentally hurt? By what's going on in terms of tariffs, or do you think that they're nimble and quick, and they'll they'll manage to outgrow this? Well, I think even before the、uh, trade conflict、uh, began, actually, already for many corporates, especially the ones that are exporting to the U.S., the margins were already very low. So in that sense, actually, many of those, especially the smaller firms, have decided to call it quits. Some have moved. Uh, from China, but others have simply shut down, especially because of soaring rents and also labor costs and so on. But at the same time, there are corporations that are very nimble. China is one of the fastest-growing markets in terms of the installation of industrial robots and so on. So in that sense, actually, there is a innovation at the same time. While、uh, also corporations, some of them actually are shutting down their operations. At the same time, we also see the trend of increasingly focusing on domestic demand, domestic, namely within China, and of course、uh, with the uh, uh, growing middle class and so on. 
that has been very significant. And at the same time, there is actually a lot of emphasis on shift to services as well, especially because the population is aging, there are a lot of healthcare and other uh, needs as well. So I think actually already we do see a, a significant transition in the structure of the Chinese economy, but the pain is palpable. Uh, and related to the pain are a variety of frauds, whether it's P2P and other issues, but very often it's, it's not simply because it was set up to be frauds, but very often because the economic conditions have changed. As a result, some of the opportunities or opportunities that thought to be, existed, uh, uh, to be existing for making profits suddenly disappeared, and as a result, investors are left in a lurch. So um, Nick Lardy's new book talks about the continued strength of the, of the um, state sector versus the private sector. Do you think that this is what you've just described is driving the state sector, this as the, all the SOEs and so forth, um, into some kind of resurgence? Well, the in terms of the trade conflicts, actually, especially hurting for the exporters. And the exporters tend to be the privates, actually, and multinationals. So as a result, in fact, because the, the, it's one of the great ironies of the trade conflicts is they are hurting the players that are integrating the two countries. And as a result, actually, it's the state sector uh, that has uh, much more ample access to credit and so on, and also policy benefits that tends to be left more alone. So in that sense, actually, that helps the state sector in terms of its percentage uh, uh, in the economy. But nonetheless, we do see, actually, there are also very thriving private uh, business entities whether it's the Alibaba and Jindong and Pinduoduo and so on, and also a lot of service-oriented online companies, music, uh, movies, a lot of those are happening, and there is a lot of excitement uh, in that area. But even there, especially in the private equity area, for example, there has been a slowdown, uh, partly because valuations have gotten far ahead in the last few years. And now, of course, with the, uh, with the chill, uh, there is reassessment and investors are much more ca uh, cautious today. Um, one of the hallmarks of Xi Jinping's um, uh, term in office has been the, his anti-corruption campaign. And how do you think, are, are reforms, because of the additional economic stress, are reforms then slowing down? Or are they increasing? Or the anti-corruption campaign, is it real? Or is it more rooted in a political, in political motivations? How do you look at that since it's such a huge issue? Yeah, well, well it's a big issue. I think actually for uh, General Secretary, Chairman, and President Xi, he assumes uh, he has assumed many positions. Actually, uh, he's truly at the apex of power. But at the same time, he is on a quest for a pure system, a pure regime. That means purging the party of a lot of corrupt elements, purging the military of uh, disloyal and corrupt uh, uh, military officers, and so on. So, is in this quest. Of course, it's both political, but also it just happens uh, that he considers uh, anti-corruption as vital to the uh, survival of the Communist Party, uh, to the longevity of the Communist Party rule in China. So in that sense, this is very serious. In fact, I looked at a lot of the regulatory developments. Some of the other issues that uh, President Xi has been very concerned about is, for example, uh, keeping the environment clean, 
um, fighting against poverty, dealing with financial risk, all of those actually also relates to the anti-corruption drive because with anti-corruption, he strengthens party discipline. So China, as a result, becomes much more corporate when central policies have to be paid attention to by local officials. As a result, uh, that also means that they pay more attention to the rules regarding the environment and uh, financial risk and also poverty. All of those come together. As a result, actually, it's not simply the trade conflicts that are making it harder for corporates. It's also because of the tightening regulatory system. Uh, used to be there were a lot of rules on the books, but they were not carefully uh, enforced. Today, however, the enforcement is very strong, especially in the environmental area. And that means polluters, uh, actually, they can be fined, very heft, uh, uh, hefty fines. Uh, as a result, actually, uh, that's also hurting a lot of corporates, especially in the industrial uh, uh, and chemicals areas. Yeah, I've seen that there have been demonstrations in Wuhan about garbage disposal. It seems to be a very hot political button. Uh, yeah, they are, yeah, it's much more a NIMBY issue, uh, not in my neighborhood. They don't, uh, you don't want to have the waste incinerators in the neighborhood. This has been a longstanding issue in certain parts of the country, especially in Hangzhou. They have found a solution. In fact, the waste incineration uh, plan becomes very transparent with data and with its operations. But in Wuhan, that's clearly not the case. People are distrustful of the local government. And in fact, the local government has been violating the rules for setting up such facilities and in keeping information from the public. And as a result, there has been a public uproar in that particular city. So this is a massive issue and it relates, in fact, President Xi himself has been promoting garbage sorting, uh, which uh, uh, especially in Shanghai in particular, and because every major city in China is surrounded by garbage dumps. Uh, and they are running out of landfill, and they need to find a solution. Uh, so this is a massive issue. It's turned out, even though it seems to be a very mundane issue that we don't have to deal with every, on a daily basis. Uh, so, but it's, it also shows how China has reached a, a stage uh, of growth and also economic prosperity. So increasing amounts of uh, uh, waste is, uh, being, uh, uh, are being produced. As a result, the country is grappling with the issue, and sometimes in you know, a very contentious manner. Right, so it's a developmental issue. Absolutely, yeah, growing pains. Growing pains. Um, you've written a paper that I uh, uh, thought was terrific about China's FDA and about the milk powder scandal that was in, I think, 2008. Um, now there's been a lot of restructuring of China's healthcare system, um, the regulatory. Do you think that that's been a successful restructuring? And was the, the milk powder formula scandal, was that the fulcrum for, for that? Or, um, or is it increasing demand and uncertainty about the provision of healthcare? How do you look at that issue? Well, it's a big issue in the U.S., for example, the FDA, uh, in fact, oversees about one-third of the economy in some ways. Uh, yeah, so it's a huge, huge area uh, uh, in terms of food and drugs in China as well. Uh, the regulatory systems have developed in response to crisis after crisis. In the drug area, there were various scandals of quality of corruption. In the food area, there was the melamine uh, baby formula uh, crisis in 2008 and also subsequently. Uh, in each case, uh, such crises actually undermine 
the public trust in the regulatory system. So the Chinese government has worked very hard. In fact, they have tried to learn uh, the Chinese FDA essentially. Uh, uh, now actually it's no longer called the FDA, but it used to be uh, called the CFDA. Uh, was essentially an effort to emulate the US FDA, uh, uh, in fact. Uh, in the baby formula case, actually the Chinese uh, dairy producers are huge now. They continue to grow. They are very competitive. And, but at the same time, they haven't recovered the public trust. So as a result, the middle class, uh, as we also know, families tend to have one child uh, typically, although now they can have a second one usually, including in the cities. Uh, they pay a lot of attention to getting the best for their babies. And very often, in fact, there have been a lot of situations where they would go to, whether it's Sydney or in Europe or even in Chicago, where they buy up a lot of the baby formula, bring them back to China, even though the quality of the products in China has also significantly risen. But the issue of trust actually remains, uh, uh, there continues to be a, a, a gulf. In the drug area, it's interesting because the Chinese government's uh, significantly improved the drug approval process, the tightening up regulation. But in fact, there are a lot of legacy drugs that didn't go through the proper clinical trials and so on, still a process to go through. But at the same time, they have uh, uh, added staff. They have an evaluation center where some of the key leaders actually uh, come, uh, have returned to China from the US FDA. So they have been tightening partly because they realize in order for China to develop a competitive pharma industry, you really need to have the best regulatory system. Uh, they have to be fair but also strict because that's the only way for the... Yeah, absolutely. And, and the vaccine scandal recently, the expired vaccine scandal, was enormous. Uh, yeah, yeah, and of course, uh, following that, they are trying to, uh, again, they are amending, the, uh, they, they are trying to produce new legislation on vaccine production and so on. So every time it's about usually some effort to make up after the, there has been a crisis. So crisis is really the mid midwife of regulatory uh, reform. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, you've done a lot of work researching the youth of China and their welfare and the urban-rural divide. And is, do you see hope in that for rural children, for left-behind children? What, is your, what do you think the future holds? Yeah, we, I uh, am part of a team that recently looked at the issue using longitudinal data, data that track Chinese families over time, and we continue to uh, uh, follow those uh, data. What's interesting is we looked at uh, so sort of the state of the children in China in a book called uh, Child and Youth Wellbeing in China. What we find is actually dramatic improvements in a relatively small number of years in the 2010s in terms of well-being along multiple dimensions. It's not just health, although there is also obesity issue, but also psychological, cognitive, and so on. And what we find especially is that the left-behind children, the children that left behind by parents who migrate to the coastal areas, generally speaking, for work, have seen the best improvements uh, in percentage terms. And we th I think actually in particular with uh, President Xi emphasizing anti-poverty, there is a lot of efforts to improve 
not only the economic prospects for the children in the less developed areas, but also efforts at childhood uh, nutrition, elimination of tuition for, ch uh, for children in the less developed areas. So social policy-wise, actually, the Chinese leadership has been paying a lot of attention to taking care or certainly helping those children. And this is also related to the health care reforms. Of course, right. there are a lot of issues, but nonetheless, increasingly, the Chinese population, around 96% of them have some access to uh, health care reforms, especially in house insurance. Although the insurance can be limited, especially for major and catastrophic illnesses, but overall, though, compared to what happened before, there has been very significant improvement. Now, part of the reason, as a political scientist, I'm looking at this issue is because when we look at the future of any society, really, we know very well, I mean, the children who are going, uh, the people who are going to be working 10 years from now are already born, and the other children of today. So you study them, you figure out actually what's going to happen and to what extent they are being educated, they are being treated well, they are actually becoming, being invested in in order to become the productive workers and taxpayers for the next generation. And also, how do they feel? How do they think? And what we find remarkable is how independent this new generation uh, of uh, the children of today are. Because the youth of China have grown up, they have only known improving prosperity. Their aspirations and expectations are high. And as a result, actually, they are much more self-centered, independent. Uh, for example, we asked, uh, there is one question in the questionnaire asking uh, people, not just actually children, but also adults, uh, to what extent you should fulfill the wishes of your parents rather than your own. Of course, the older generation tend to think you should emphasize or follow the uh, wishes of the parents. And that's clearly not the case with the younger uh, generation who, of course, have access to information much more so despite censorship, uh, who also have places where they go to. For example, uh, there is uh, a lot of the celebrity culture. There are also websites such as Billy Billy that cater to the young and so on. So increasingly, the young people have their own culture, have their own identity, and they are not shy about showing their own identity. And I think actually... As a result, the generational differences are very big. Uh, uh, President Xi's generation, they are known as the Red God generation, who grew up in the Mao era, uh, were, uh, didn't receive a lot of education and were heavily bombarded with political propaganda and so on, and didn't get, many of them actually have retired and really sort of suffered tremendously at different times. They want their children to succeed, to have all the best that they could offer. And yes, uh, uh, the, those children indeed are getting excellent treatment in many ways, or grandchildren uh, in many ways as well. Uh, but of course, sometimes they don't talk in the same language. They have very different languages very often. Well, I think that's not just in China. That's all over the world and maybe partially driven by technology. And uh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, but of course, in the Chinese case, we have a country that 30, 40 years ago was still in the Mao era with absolutely uh, little independent information as, and so on. And today it's much more open and so on. So, sort of, so the changes are much, much greater for China than in an uh, you know, open society such as the U.S. One trend that you identify that I think is very important and underreported is maybe peak urbanization in China de-urbanization. Recently, 10 million youth have been 
sent to the countryside. I've heard anecdotally that a lot of people who were migrant workers during the spring festival, when they went home, they didn't come back to the cities. Um, and unemployment is a growing problem. But do you see China de-urbanizing um, because of the limits on water, as you mentioned, on simple things like trash collection? Do you think that China cities can grow anymore or that there'll be a move to the countryside that will be absolute policy, which could be dramatically have a dramatic effects on things like you know iron ore production mm -hmm. in Australia. A lot of knock-on effects from that. Absolutely, and I like your reference to peak urbanization. Uh, currently, uh, the national leadership in China continues to have uh, strategic planning about increasing urbanization. The the level remains relatively low, and they are trying to ease on the urban restrictions on migration to the cities and so on. But when we look at the cities, uh, in fact, sort of in China, we have to differentiate among uh, between the mega cities, Beijing, Shanghai, which are trying to restrict the number of people in those areas to the medium-sized cities that are increasingly competitive in attracting the well-educated in particular. And then there are the, in the Rust Belt and so on, in the Northwest, Northeast, there are cities that are losing population, especially those company towns for coal mines, for machinery, and so on. When you have the major companies or the coal mines uh, get depleted, then suddenly they face the problem of restructuring. In fact, it turns out very often they cannot be restructured. So as a result, the population actually leave. They go to the warmer places in the country. Uh, some, some of them find uh, their way overseas as well. So as a result, actually, we have a very diverse uh, landscape of urbanization in China with the mega cities continuing to attract people. At the same time, however, uh, so sort of a, a decade ago, China was still in the phase of abundant labor, cheap labor, and that has changed. The Chinese labor force shrank by more than 4 million people last year. So as a result, actually, increasingly, uh, we find that people are able to, to go uh, to be closer to home and still earn a decent wage uh, uh, compared to moving, let's say, to Shenzhen, where the living costs are much higher. So in that sense, actually, increasingly, a lot of the uh, migrant laborers, uh, liberals are less willing, uh, in fact, to move to places, especially when cities such as Beijing have a policy of driving them out uh, in particular. So there is a lot of variation across the country. And there could be effects on left-behind children if their parents indeed stay with them or are more accessible to them. Absolutely. Uh, one of the most striking developments uh, we find is in the process, as the Chinese government also tried to level the quality of education for rural children, they merged a lot of villages and townships. And in the process, a lot of schools also got merged. Uh, so, you know, very striking situation. About 30% of the children in rural areas live in boarding schools. Not what we think of as boarding school, but especially public schools where the children very, uh, from very early on live on campus, uh, uh, actually. So, uh, so there are a lot of issues that education specialists are trying to study. What are the impact on those children and so on? So it's a, it's a very striking phenomenon. Uh, that's, again, not, not just unique, but also on a scale that's unimaginable in other countries, essentially. Right. That's that's right. And um, one issue that I followed is uh, property taxes in China and why there aren't property taxes. In, uh, this, and you've written a lot about centralization versus federalism in China. And 
it seems that the local governments, one of the reasons for this, the urban areas growing so rapidly and strongly is that the local rural governments don't really have any taxing power and their revenues must come from the central government. And this has led to them selling land and doing other kinds of sort of crazy deals that didn't really make sense, misallocation of capital. Do you see China eventually having a property tax and allowing local governments to become more self-sufficient since they have to provide mm-hmm. services, but they don't really have a means of revenue other than, for example, selling assets? Uh, yeah, you touch on an extremely uh, salient and contentious issue in China. Of course, the authorities have been talking about having a property tax for a long time. There have been some experiments in cities such as Chongqing and Shanghai for high-end properties. Uh, but they also know that the sooner you, uh, you impose a substantial property tax, uh, you are going to are likely to bring property prices down. And that will depress land prices. Uh, So it's a catch-22 at this point. Local authorities are very dependent on revenue from uh, selling the rights to use land. Uh, But they want to diversify uh, away from that source and turn to property taxes. Uh, So the debate is actually uh, to what extent that that is possible. But secondly, actually, do you really want to do it? The other issue is uh, with regard to property taxes is Chinese property owners actually don't really own the land. They own the right to use the land for 70 years officially. So therefore, if they don't own the uh, the land outright, uh, how do you tax them, right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they're essentially leasing. They're long-term leases like they have in the UK. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So one of the issues that has been part of the U.S.-China trade negotiations and has riveted attention is the political movement in Hong Kong. How do you see that? What do you think the end result will be of all the demonstrations there, how is Beijing seeing this? I know um, evidently President Trump agreed not to critique this in order for the trade negoci- negotiations to go on. So it is some kind of a linchpin. And also Chinese companies are depending on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange to raise capital at the same time. Where do you think this will be in five years? Where will Hong Kong be? Well, I think uh, a lot could go wrong in Hong Kong uh, because of the uh, this very delicate situation. Uh, it's delicate, bec- uh, but also it's structural. Structural in the sense that uh, with the handover of Hong Kong uh, to PRC control in 1997, a uh, political system was developed to ensure that the central authorities, namely Beijing, has a lot of influence in picking who becomes the chief executive. So the chief executive, the political team in Hong Kong, therefore, tends to pay a lot of attention to what's needed by the central government. But at the same time, Hong Kong continues to have a relatively free press, a freedom of assembly, and the rule of law. And when you have such a situation, people can vent themselves, and immediately we begin to see a lot of confrontations between the authorities who tend to be oriented towards Beijing uh, with the society that wants to curtail that influence. Uh, so it's almost like a inbuilt structural conflict. And with this uh, debate currently about the extradition bill amendment, actually, so sort of a, um, so the, uh, a quarter of the population came onto the streets to protest. It's a massive Ma- protest, right? So sort of and, a, and, and if, 
Absolutely. So in this case, actually, it's clear uh, the national leadership feels like actually it's sort of uh, uh, there was a big hole that's dug, and it's actually uh, made the situation very delicate for the national leadership. Uh, so now it's trying to distance itself from uh, the push for the extradition bill amendment, actually. So sort of, uh, and of course, uh, Chief Executive Carrie Lam has already publicly stated that the bill is dead, essentially, even though she refused to formally withdraw it from the legislature. So in that sense, actually, we have come to a, a halt uh, over mostly about this contentious issue. But the structural conflict continues, uh, the tensions continue to be there. There's a lot of distrust between society and the ruling elite uh, uh, in this case. And of course, when Hong Kong has the peg and also has such a prominent role in the financial system for the rest of China, then it becomes a big issue, especially in the trade conflict, because uh, um, of course, with the drain on the foreign exchange reserves uh, for for the mainland and so on, Hong Kong actually is connected to some extent to that as well. So there's a lot of worry, especially because the status of Hong Kong uh, uh, rests partly on the U.S. Uh, Hong Kong Policy Act of 1992. Right. With that act, we respect the autonomy of Hong Kong under the one country, two systems model. But if there is the assessment by Congress, by the U.S. president to say Hong Kong has lost its autonomy, then, of course, that act, uh, of course, can be withdrawn. And that could threaten the, uh, again, further threaten the status for Hong Kong. So I think, actually, this is a very delicate moment. Uh, President Trump has wisely stayed away uh, from the issue. Uh, But, of course, uh, in the meantime, uh, I think the Chinese leadership recognized that the U.S. Has, could have a lot of influence on Hong Kong. Uh, in fact, could further precipitate some sort of, uh, uh, certainly the uh, financial strength in the system and so on, especially because in recent weeks, for example, Hong Kong savers were trying to move money out of Bank of China and so on, try to, again, to exert influence on, uh, on Beijing by doing so. Uh, so there are a lot of actually tensions running both publicly but also in the financial system and so on. And to the extent uh, Alibaba, for example, just uh, is confirmed almost actually Alibaba is trying to list on the Hong Kong boards, but it's scaled back the scale of its listing partly because of the downturn in the in the markets and the political tensions there as well. Uh, but of course, it's persisting, uh, it's uh, persevering in this process. But it's making it a little more difficult, certainly on the main for the mainland. I think five years ago, a lot of people would have thought over time that China will become more like Hong Kong. But I think maybe now they believe Hong Kong will become more like China, or in the long run, that it, it that the system in China is becoming more authoritarian. And that's not going to change. How do you look at the long-term outlook of of society, political society in China? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, before 1997, uh, Deng Xiaoping certainly promised that uh, Hong Kong would be able to maintain its status under the one country, two systems uh, uh, policy. And I think actually there was a lot of assumption that in this 50 years, the mainland uh, would transform itself and become more like Hong Kong. But it turns out, actually, of course, the situation has uh, gone the other way. Uh, But, of course, the future of Hong Kong and also the mainland continues to be negotiated and debated over time. Uh, I I think, actually, that's partly where, for example, the trade conflicts and so on happens and have an impact as well. For example, with the 
reforms that are being demanded by the trade ref, uh, trade conflicts and uh, and the negotiations and so on. So that's creating a little more room for the private sector and so on. And at the same time, uh, I think sometimes we tend to be lost in the moment when we see the tensions. We think that they are going to persist and so on. Sometimes actually it's through the tensions, through the struggles. That we find a new equilibrium in the Hong Kong case. I think both sides are beginning to see, but especially on the mainland, they see uh, more clearly the value of maintaining or letting Hong Kong stay the way it is financially. But at the same time, I'm pretty sure there is also effort to say to what extent we can exert greater. Political control, but the two goals actually are in conflict very often. I think actually this will continue to be a process. In terms of the the mainland, again,、uh, in many areas actually there is greater government transparency. There are efforts to curb the police powers, even while giving them greater discretion、uh, in certain respects as well. So again, we see a lot of actually conflicting developments. Uh, uh, actually, uh, people are using the courts more to sue the government. The all the court cases, or the more than ninety percent of them,、uh, the verdicts are published online. So there is a push on greater transparency with the anti-corruption campaign and so on. The government, the、uh, the governance in many respects is actually improving, even while the party's dominance is also improving. But at the same time, in certain other respects, certainly the propaganda system and so on, sometimes and quite often, including in the trade conflict,、uh, we see the Korean War movies and so on. So we see the other aspect whereby、uh, there's a lot of emphasis on party propaganda.、Uh, so I think actually、uh, this is actually a, a phase、uh, because there have been cycles of repression and relaxation over time.、Uh, we will continue to see this. And leadership matters at this point on the presidency. There is a lot of emphasis on party leadership and so on. But at the same time,、uh, there are fundamental. Underlining trends, including actually societal diversification and so on. So the future of China probably is not exactly set at this moment, and there will continuing、uh, changes, especially with the economic uh, uh, trends and also social transformation uh, uh, that are ongoing. And I do think actually future leaders will not want to see a country that's basically based on. Exactly like 1984.、Uh, so in that sense, actually, so sort of there will continuing,、uh, there will continue to be negotiations and contentions, both in local governments and also at the central level. So it's a it's a story in progress. Absolutely, story in progress. Yeah. What's your finally? What's your forecast on the U.S.-China trade negotiations? How do you think? And when this, it's been a very long struggle session between the two countries. How do you see this? And when do you see it resolving? Well, certainly we have two formidable leaders、uh, at loggerheads, and two、uh, truly the、uh, largest and the second largest economy、uh, fighting against each other. So this has to be a contest of wills, a battle、uh, between two behemoths. So in that sense, actually, this has to take a, a bit longer.、Uh, already,、uh, we know that the、uh, the draft agreement reached 150 pages.、Uh, you can imagine there are a lot of major issues as well as details. So this process has to continue for a while.、Uh, the Chinese uh, uh, has re-adjusted、uh, uh, the composition of the Chinese team for negotiation.
Commerce. They increase, yeah, so sort of they now include the Minister of uh, Commerce, Commerce and mm -hmm. also some other negotiators. So they are really getting very serious. Of course, on the U.S. side, we have Ambassador Lighthizer, who has spent his lifetime first fighting with Japan, now fighting with the PRC. So in that sense, again, we have two very strong teams against each other. So it's going to take some time. Uh, but at the same time, I do feel like actually this is when they are truly serious. I think there is room for resolution. It may take a bit longer than anticipated, but at the same time, it does appear that we are moving in the direction of some sort of, a, uh, it's not exactly a compromise, but finding that equilibrium whereby the Chinese feel that they, uh, they can defend their respect. But when you had a situation over the last few months when both sides were so mad at each other, they had let their domestic publics uh, know that they were fighting very hard. Uh, maybe it's partly for a show, but that's, that optics is very important because you don't want to come back with a deal when you have a lot of people back home saying, oh, you didn't fight hard enough, you made too many assumptions. Absolutely. Right. Now, both sides can come back and say, we fought hard and we may got a worse deal than before we uh, before uh, let's say May, uh, then, but nonetheless we fought very hard and now we rest. Uh, you can rest assured we did that and therefore this is the best deal we could get in this uh, under the circumstances. Well, I think that's a, a very realistic picture of, of what's going on. But thank you for giving us this context and the, about the, uh, the history of China and where China's going. I think it's very helpful. Where can people read more of your work? Well, they can certainly go to my uh, 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 website, daliyang, uh, D-A-L-I-Y-A-N-G dot org. Uh, and of course, uh, I do comment and uh, uh, of course, uh, the books can be easily available online. Thank you for joining us. Uh, it's my honor.